Johnny Foreman. Thank you so much for coming in today during spring break. Chesre, thanks for coming in. It's great to see you. Uh, same here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about. We were really talking about before you know we started recording some of your your memories, looking at the old football photo there in two thousand with Damian Davis and Ryan Boyle. Yeah, I remember that game well. I remember it well. We just. I think it was City College or Poly. We had beaten them. We had just come out of the uh, MSA, and uh, they were a powerhouse back in the day. And uh, we beat them, and the kids went crazy. And you see that picture? They're right underneath the scoreboard and the goalposts. It's <laughs> amazing. And uh, I, I think we can talk about that story with Ryan Boyle, and uh, that was a, that's a, just an amazing story. Just the, the athlete that he was, they had to check. His helmet? Yeah, well, uh, Ryan was uh, a very good athlete and one who could, as far as the offense we were running during the time, he he could actually read the defenses and understood where the weakness was in every defense that our opponents would come up with. And he knew the offense so well, he would call the formation, say the snap count is one, two, or whatever, walk up to the line, look at the defense, and then call a play mm-hmm. that would take advantage of their defense. And people started wondering, because we weren't signaling or anything. And uh, we got to the uh, McDonough game, and it was said that, um, I think Calvin Hall started the rumor, that we had a microphone a transistor <laughs> in his helmet. And we would uh, speak in a mic and say, Ryan, run this play, run that play. And when we got to McDonough, they actually took his helmet and checked it out to see how he was getting the plays. And said, we aren't doing it. He's calling the plays. We aren't calling it. And the offense coordinator would sit down. And he, you know, he would start the game. <laughs> and around after the first quarter, he understood the defenses. So he said, okay, Ryan has it. Let's go. It's, yeah. It was great. It's amazing. He was he was like that playing lacrosse too. Oh, I mean, he just he just understood this the sport so well. He that did. He did. He was like a coach out there. He, he was a coach out there. He knew exactly. He knew where everyone was. He knew the weaknesses, the strengths, and he was he was a fantastic athlete. Good kid too. Yeah, he's a grown man today, but yeah, I mean he's on he's on TV. We've talked about it before. He's on TV yeah. commentating and calling out the plays before they happen. <laughs> now it's just you know he's. He's got a gift for that. Yeah, he is. He has a gift. Yeah. Um, so, Coach Foreman, uh, maybe we could start the, the podcast thinking about your journey to Gilman and, and that first time that you came to campus and met Sherm Bristow, right, and met Headmaster Reddy Finney and, yeah. and maybe decided that Gilman was the place for you because as we were saying before we started recording, you haven't even thought about leaving this place since you first first got here. Never did. Never did. Got here in 84. I, I met Reddy and, and uh, Mr. Finney and uh, Sherman Bristow uh, back in the 80s, 82 or so, and interviewed. How'd you meet Sherman Bristow? <laughs> in poker game. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably should have said it. But yeah, and uh, Sherm, the year before, I think it was 81, he he won the uh, Coach of the Year. And and then some guys introduced me to him. A little poker game, I think it was. But anyway, uh, and I interviewed uh, here at Gilman, talked to Mr. Finney, and uh, they were interested. 
And at the same time, as I was saying earlier, that uh, at the same time, I met Sarah Donnelly, who at the time was the executive director of uh, Ames Association of Independent Maryland Schools. And I visited her, uh, her office, which was on the Severance campus, Severance Schools campus. And prior to leaving the office, she said, look, I want you to meet my husband. I said, okay. And I said, well, where is he? She said, he's the head of school at Severn. So we walked over to his office. I met him. We sat down and talked. And he said, I'll be in touch. And he said, well, but in the same token, he asked me what was I doing. Excuse me. And I told him I was interviewing at Gilman School. Um, Summer came. I was doing my summer job. And uh, he called me and said, hey, look, I just want to take you to lunch. What time is your lunch break? So I told him he came up to Baltimore and we sat down at lunch and he asked me, had Gilman offered me yet? And I said, not as of yet. I'm still waiting for Mr. Finney to see what's going to happen. He went in his pocket and pulled out an envelope, pushed across the table and said, here. I said, what's this? He said, well, Severin wants you. If Gilman is not offering you, Severin wants you. So I opened the envelope and I said, wow, Okay, okay, well. Let's do it. Let's take it. So mm-hmm. I, I took the job and I called Mr. Finney and said, Mr. Finney, I, I apologize, but uh, Severin has made me an offer, so I think I'm going to take that and uh, going down to Severin. If you, you all are still interested, um, you know, give me a call in January the next year, which was, the, yeah, that was 84. Yeah, that was 84, the year 84, January. Um, after uh, New Year's Eve, there was a a letter in my mailbox at Severn, uh, Gilman letterhead, and I opened it up and they asked me for an interview. Could you come back up for an interview? And I did. As a matter of fact, I came up on a Sunday too because I hadn't met uh, the law school head at the time. And uh, they offered me a position and uh, in, in the fall of 84, I came up. And I came up as the uh, as a seventh grade science teacher and a varsity football running back coach and and defensive line coach. And uh, I coached JV track. I was a JV track coach under Jack Thompson, who was the head of of the track program at the time. And uh, that's how it all started. What was that first year like at Gilman coming in? What were your first impressions of the place? And what was it like back then? It was a huge campus. I hadn't been on, I thought I was still in college with all of the buildings and fields and all of that. And I worked, it was tough running from the law school to the middle school and to the athletic department. I don't think I ever ate lunch because I remember, I remember the middle school head, uh, Paul Killebrew, he saw me coming from the law school over to the uh, middle. He said, how are you doing? I said, I'm stretched. He said, well, just don't break. So, <laughs> so you're teaching middle school science, yes. lower school PE, phys ed, yes. and then JV track. That's not all. I would have uh, pre-first through third grade, then uh, fourth period, uh, and that was around 11 or so, I can't remember. I would come over to the middle school and teach seventh grade science. And then around one o'clock, I had the fourth and fifth grade PE. And then after the fourth and fifth PE, I had a break and then came sixth grade. I had all of the sixth graders along with a other group of teachers who were working with me. And then I sort of kind of got out of seventh and eighth grade because I was coaching varsity football. Hmm. And I would just make sure that the seventh and eighth grade were doing and going where they were supposed to go uh, athletically uh, for their intramurals. And then at three, no, at four o'clock, varsity football would start. And I would just go ahead and 
stopped coaching football. It was a long day. Wow. You're, you're yeah, doing was, everything. <laughs> except lining the field. So, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so you were saying a little bit earlier how teaching PE influenced your abilities as a track coach and and how, how did how did teaching PA or PE um, kind of help you develop into the track coach that you would become well I, prior to coming to Gilman I was the head track coach at Northern High School I coached football at Northern as well I was the offensive uh, I was a defensive coordinator defensive line offensive line uh, coach at uh, Northern and also uh, became when I got to Northern I, w I was appointed the head track coach there, and we had done pretty well and competed against Gilman a number of times. Uh, uh, Gilman was in the B Conference, and so were we. Uh, so we always competed against uh, Gilman, so I knew Jack Thompson just through track and field. So when I came here, they still made, they made me the JV track coach. I had to try to build a team because uh, the track team was okay when I walked in the door. They were doing well. But I thought we could do better. Were you beating Gilman when you were at Northern? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what else? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, was it competitive? or I, like... We were competitive, but um, we, we were pretty good in the B Conference. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we got with the A Conference schools, you know, no one survived if you were in the B Conference. Only a few teams. But uh, we, we, we went back and forth. But it was usually between Gilman and, and, uh, and Northern mm -hmm. back in the day. That was... 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, mm -hmm. uh, that, that that occurred. So um, becoming a uh, PE teacher uh, with, with Jim Busick, we wanted to make sure the kids ran and stayed active. So every Thursday, every Thursday, they would run a scenic. And we would, it would they would think they were running a mile, but they were running about 600 meters or so. But the kids got started getting competitive, very competitive. And we started intermingling that into the program. And the kids knew I was the track coach, so they wanted to show off and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And even when we came down to the uh, middle school, I had all of the sixth graders. And the sixth graders in the fall would play flag football, soccer, and uh, I can't think of the third sport that we would play. But after football season, I would let all the teachers go. And from November through December, the, the winter Christmas break, and I would take the 80-some kids with me. And we would play Capture the Flag. But it was also our cross-country unit. So every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we would jog either a mile or we would jog, uh, you know, maybe a mile and a half. But I make it competitive. They, they didn't know they were running that far. Mm -hmm. So, and that just got to the point where kids were really becoming cardiovascular, you know, done. They were ready and in condition. And we made it a lot of fun. So the kids kind of associated that with track and field as well. Seventh and eighth grade was the same sort of deal. And we would try to get the kids really ready for running. Teaching science, especially when we got into the biology piece, I was teaching kids about mus muscular contraction and how the muscles contract and the lactic acid, how you get rid of it. They knew the difference between aerobic and anaerobic uh, exercises and talked about track running the distances and how you distribute energy and that sort of thing. And the kids also knew that I was a track coach, so they got interested in it. So I, I just started building a program just like that. And you got to know, I mean, you really got to know these kids too, and they 
saw you as the track coach. They wanted to. That's right. They wanted to compete for you. It was pre- probably pretty easy for you to recruit them into the program. Well, yes and no, but you, I built relationships. Yeah. And and I still to this day will say you build relationships with the kids, and and they will they will come and 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 perform for you athletically, academically. As you build those relationships, it becomes synonymous with the teaching piece. And I think that then therein is what we call the teacher-coach concept, that I could be in the classroom with my shirt and tie on, and if I'm late to athletics, i got to get out there because you're there. So I may be out there in my shirt and tie coaching, and I've done that many times. And uh, But I look at the track, the field, the gymnasium, the weight room as the open space classroom. And just, just, I'm just not in front of the classroom lecturing, you know, just sitting at a chalkboard at the time, chalkboard, whiteboard now, uh, computer <laughs> and Zoom. Especially now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're outside and that's your classroom and same, yeah. same concept you had in the classroom. You take that concept out there on the field and track and field. I would, the kid, kids, we were in the classroom, we would teach them the difference between a strain and a sprain. So when you got on the track, oh, I pulled my mother. How you know you pulled it? What happened? Mm-hmm. What, what was the cause? Is it a strain or did you pull it? You know, and we would talk about that. And once the kids start thinking, I said, we in class the other day, we talked about this. What's the difference? By the time I finished talking to them, oh, I'm okay. Let's go. Okay, let's go. Wow. That's, that's really important that you were able to construct the, the classroom in the building yeah. around what you're doing outside too and really inform the your athletes about some of those bi- biological pieces oh yeah. yeah the anatomy physiology the kinesiology of it the kids understood the whole concept of, of how the human body operated and how it worked even in the weight room when you're talking about lifting you know and, and that's where the kinesiology piece comes in to help the kids understand the angles and how they're lifting the weights and, and the reasons why they're lifting and what are they building, how are you building it. All yeah. of that all of that comes together. That's so important because, in, I mean, I, I'm thinking about myself in high school. I didn't know any of that. I mean, I took a human anatomy course my senior year because my mom was always like, she was a kinesiology major oh, wow. in college, Great. and she was like, you have to take a class on the human body. You do. And I was I was a senior. I was like, Mom, I want to have a free period. Like like some of the Gilman guys, they want to have their first period free. I was like, Mom, I don't want to take a, you know, a human anatomy course, but I did. I'm glad that I did because it helps you in sports. It does. Sure. And I fought against it when I was in college. You know, why, why do I have to take chemistry? Why why do I have to take biology, physiology of exercise? I just want to exercise. Well, you have to understand what anatomy, physiology is, and physiology of exercise and kinesiology. They're all intertwined together. And once you understand how the body operates and how it moves, why it moves, generating speed, how, how you can do all of that, understanding the body, you're a better athlete. How to recover. Oh, yes. What you need to do. That's the biggest piece, I yeah, think, yeah. is what you need to do to recover after a track meet or a hard practice. How do you get your energy back and mm-hmm. get your body you know, back into shape for the next round? Exactly. The, the, the waste product of a muscular... Uh, contraction is lactic acid. You got to get rid of the lactic acid because that's a waste product and it weighs on the, on, on the muscles. And so in order, you have to get that out. And, and that's why you see everyone hydrating mm-hmm. because the perspiration is getting, taking the waste product away. And 
because it's a podcast, I'm going to tell you what perspiration actually is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, once you get rid of that, uh, then you start getting the lactic acid out. You're ready to go. You recover. You can go now. Yeah. After our scrimmage, actually, yesterday, one of the coaches said something that I don't think the, the high school boys would have thought about, but they were all tired. It was their first time really, I mean, mm -hmm. second time really competing in a full scrimmage. Right. And they're all tired after the game, after the scrimmage. And one of our coaches was like, tomorrow, before our practice today, get on a bike and, and ride the bike for 20 minutes or go for a light jog That's to get right. some of that lactic acid out. Exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you have to, and we call it a cool down. If you, if you notice after a track practice, kids will run in a reversed direction on the track. They're cooling down, having the muscles and the pulse rate come down and get their body back to their normal contraction, the normal breathing. So you have to get rid of all of that workout stuff and the next day you're going to cramp up you got to make sure you drink water and slowly get back into it warming up and cooling down is very important in athletics a lot of kids won't even warm up i watch them walk in the weight room and the first thing they do is jump on the weight machine to start going and warm up son mm -hmm. what do you mean i'm not gonna warm up I'll say, okay go ahead yeah. <laughs> well you don't think you have to when you're when you're you know a young young guy but you do that's why i taught that that's how you class. get injured oh yeah Prevention and cares of injuries. We had that in school too, in class, in college. So you have to understand how you prevent injuries, and then how you, you know, get yourself out of it as well. And we have an excellent training staff here. That when I was in uh, at Northern in public school, we didn't have a, a trainer. Mm -hmm. But uh, in uh, here in the independent schools, and the trainers now even in in public school too. So now that they're there, the trainers are taking very good care of our kids. So. Mm -hmm. So when you became the head varsity track coach in 88, 1988. 1988, how did you recruit guys to, I mean, you talked a little bit about how you were teaching middle school biology and science, and, and there were ways that you could build relationships with guys through that. But some of the other athletes at the school who maybe weren't involved with track, how did you kind of pitch track to them and get them involved with your program? Talking, relationships. I had the kids go out and recruit. You, you know, uh, if you were I'm thinking about pole vaulting, I had to build a field team. So, uh, and that's the other piece. You, the name of the sport is called track and field. Mm -hmm. And what I understood back in the public schools, your track team, your running team, has to be just as strong as your field team. And I would look at the basketball players. And I, first thing I would ask them, can you make a layup? So, yeah, let me see. Mm -hmm. Let me make a layer. Oh, okay, good, great, great. Can you uh, go up and touch the backboard? Just just touch the backboard, touch the rim. Can you dunk a basketball? Oh, okay. Well, you can high jump, you can long jump, you can triple jump. And then I would look for uh, a gymnast to to be a pole vaulter. Um, first thing we asked the kid, can you do a cartwheel? Okay, yeah. Can you do a cartwheel? Mm -hmm. oh, fantastic. That, that looks pretty good. Can you do a round off? Round off. Oh, great. I said, can you stand on your hands? He said, yeah. Stand on his hands. Can you walk on your hands? And start walking. It's good. Now we're going to teach you how to pole vault. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the kids that I found, <laughs> just happened chance, Khalil Ukta, who's now, I, at one point, he was the president of our alumni association. He could do all of that. And we taught him how to pole vault, sent, to, sent him to a couple of camps. His record still stands in the MIAA 
is jumping 15 feet, pole vaulting 15 feet, went on to Lehigh University on a full ride. And uh, he tried out for the Olympics. I think he hit 17 feet, but uh, he couldn't get the rest of the way to get on to the uh, the Olympic team that during those years. But uh, Khalil Uchtar was my, was our first, I won't say my, was our first uh, pole vault champion. And we've had pretty success in pole vaulting uh, each year. We, we had a great group last year, and unfortunately the spring, we had a great team last year. Yeah, that's a Back shame. Then, and the pandemic had other ideas. Mm-hmm. But we had uh, three pole, two pole vaulters that could go 12 feet or better. Hmm. And uh, there were some young kids behind them that could do just as well, 11 feet and so forth. We, we were ready. So we had a good team ready. But uh, So aside from the, the natural abilities and the athleticism that you looked for from, from athletes in other sports, what are some of the, the qualities of a successful track athlete that you, you could also identify? Like what are some of those – um, other abilities, you know, just apart from talent that you looked for? Well, um, I, I looked at the other sports. I looked at football. I looked at soccer. I looked at the basketball team. I looked at the swim team and tried to find kids who didn't mind working out and running and jumping and throwing. For an example, an offensive, defensive lineman, we would look forward to make a shot put or discus throw. Running back could be a sprinter, shot 100, 200. Cross country, of course, that they were our 32, 1600 people. I would look at the soccer players and try to find an 800 or a quarter mile because of soccer. You're just running all the time. Of course, you have to have the dexterity to be able to kick the ball well. So we uh, would look for our 800 and quarter miles in, in that sport. And as I said, basketball, I could find my high jumpers, long jumpers, and triple jumpers. Mm-hmm. Hurdles was a little different. <laughs> Uh, you had to find a very unique kid who could sprint as well as learn learn the uh, hurdling technique. Joe Duncan was our, is our hurdle coach, and once Joe gets his hands on you as a hurdler, he'll, he'll have you going over the hurdles when you thought you never could. <laughs> and uh, I remember we were teaching kids how to do that. We put, it on the, put them on the grass. We, it's turf on the oval now, but at the time it was grass. Mm-hmm. And we placed it at the lowest height, and he would – go and fall over but eventually I'm trying to think of this kid now because he can't remember his name he went to Yale University and broke the record I think his record still stands in the 110 uh, hurdles he was a heck of a heck of an artist too Hmm. but uh, yeah we've had we've had some pretty good hurdlers over the years last year we really had a good crew and we were just waiting for the meets to start Joe had three certified hurdlers that could row they could go and boom yeah. pandemic said we got another idea for you <laughs> same same was going on with the lacrosse too yeah. we were very excited about our season and i think tennis too in the spring baseball was, as well baseball yeah yeah um that's tough yeah you can't control it though no no um so in in 88 when you came here and you were you know you're in your i guess you were fourth year at gilman and you're the head track coach yeah. then um, how many years did it really take you to build the the type of winning team and the winning track team and, and program that you were not satisfied with, but then could kind of carry over and every year it was, it was bringing more guys in because they wanted to be a part of something special like that? Well, we, we, we made it so that the relationship building with the coaching staff and, and the teachers that I'd had with us at the time, uh, they were good, had good relationships with kids as well. 
and they would convince the kids to come out for the sport. And we had them uh, ready to compete. And we, we could take a kid who may be, you know, so-so as an athlete, but we teach them how to run because there's a technique to running. Mm -hmm. And once a kid learns the technique to running, he could see that he could become faster. His endurance would in improve. He could be a distance runner, be quarter mile. He could be a, a sprinter or a jumper or a thrower. And that, that was the other aspect. It wasn't just a track team. It was a track program because programmatically, we bring you along from a ninth grader to 10th, 11th, and of course, then 12th. And we, we teach tech, we taught technique a lot. How you use your arms. How, how, what about your foot strike? Uh, making sure you, you, your foot is up, hitting the ground in the proper angle, the push-off, the acceleration, mm -hmm. all of those things. You have to learn how to run. A lot of kids today just run in the manner <laughs> when their parents said, okay, walk from, from me to dad or mommy to dad or to your parents, uh, and that's how you run. No one ever taught them how to run. Well, you, people will, will not understand your arms are very important when you run. Mm -hmm. And and the the kids in the track program will tell you your arms will always bring you home, right? And and someone who doesn't run doesn't understand that. Well, one of the <laughs> one of the little tricks that I'll show I, I don't do it anymore because I'm not the head coach. I would set the kids on the mat. We would always warm up in the wrestling room. No one understood. That's a little secret. Can't tell you too much about that. But anyway, we'd always warm up in the wrestling room. And I would just say, set on the floor with your feet, with your legs straight out, your feet and your toes pointing straight up. Now I want you to place your arms in an angle as if they're right at your hips. Now just move your arms. And I said, I want you to move at this tempo. I start the tempo. And they would stop moving the arms. And I would increase the tempo even more so, even more so where I'm really clapping real fast. And their arms are starting to move, but their, their glutes are coming off the floor. And they are amazing. How am I moving? I said, okay, stop. Were you running? No, coach. I said, what were you doing? I was just moving my arms real hard. But it caused your body to come up and down, didn't it? Yes. That's how powerful your arms are hmm. when you run. Now stand up. Put your feet together. And let's do the same thing. And once we increase the tempo and their arms and they're jumping around, I said, well, what's, what's, why are you jumping? Stay still. And your arms are moving. That's how powerful your arms are. Hmm. And when you're running and you hear me yell out on the track, use your arms, use your arms, your arms always bring you home. You could be exhausted, but the harder you move your arms, your upper body, your lower body starts to follow. As long as you keep the same technique, don't lose your technique. When your arm comes down, you should be able to see your left arm and your left eye, your right hand in your right eye. When you cross your body up, you're tying your body up and, and your body doesn't move like this. So it, it should be straight straight across your body exactly. or straight up and down. Straight up and body. down like you're taking something out of your pocket, you're putting it back in. Hmm. Never clench your fist. Think about muscular contraction. When you clench your fist, you clench your fist, you're, you're, you're clenching your and you're causing the, the, the uh, arm to tighten up your abs, your, your shoulders, your abs, your chest. Your Everything's pecs, connected. Everything is tightening up just because you did this. Mm. And guys will grip their teeth. No. If you watch a good sprinter, his jaws are running up, jumping up and down. That means everything is relaxed. Mm. 
So, okay, stay relaxed and your body can contract better, quicker, faster. That's technique. You learn that. You have to teach that because you aren't taught how to run unless yeah. you're in a track program. Right, and, and unless you're in your science class too because you're breaking <laughs> down all the... Uh Oh, the biology of this as well. It's a science. It is such a science. Yeah, yeah it's a science. The body. Understand the body. Yeah, and I'm sure that goes unnoticed or overlooked because you you wouldn't think as a runner that if you're, like, who cares about your 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 hands and what they look like, but it's so important. That's right. That's why you can you make the it. difference in a, in a sport that's predicated on seconds or milliseconds, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and in track of track and field, in, in in the game itself, in the track meet itself, if if it's a dual meet, first place is five points, second place is third points, three points, and 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 third place is one point, and you try to calculate and do that in every meet, in every event, to calculate the points so that you can get ahead of your opponent. Mm -hmm. So we also knew what we needed to do to beat our beat our opponent in in, in dual meet. And the same concept when we got to the championships, when there, when there were more than uh, 10, 15, 20 teams, we would go outside into uh, some of the other counties and, and compete in some meets where there are close to 40, 50 teams, and we could win because mm -hmm. we calculate the points. We know where we need to be. And uh, at the end of the meet, we won mm. because we calculated where, where we needed to accumulate our points right. and to maximize our effort and place the team uh, and, and place the kids in, in specific places. I had a, had a heck of a uh, coaching staff. Wow. Yeah, with the guys were it's good. So, it's so much work to and you think about all of those. Oh, yeah. The structure of your lineup and, you know, all the details that go into this. And I've never I've never been a part of a track team because I was playing lacrosse right, during yeah. this time. But I had never thought about how mental this, the sport is, too. Like, I, I, you look at the track and – Again, I have no idea what, what's going on out there. It just looks like guys are, are out there running. It looks like a three-ring circus. Yeah, I know everyone says, how do you know what's going on? I know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, during football season, I'm just as concerned with the cross-country team, too. What are they doing? Because they are, that's my 3,200-meter runners. That's my 16. You know, I need to know what those guys are doing, how are they working out. How, how did you prepare um, your track athletes for the mental components of of a track meet, you know, apart from the physical preparation, but thinking about your competition and like the mindset part of, of this, the sport. Well, having been around for a bit, you knew competitively where the other teams were you, and, and with mile split and some of the other uh, formats, you could find out what kids were doing this and what the opponents and then you understood your, the other coaching staff, so you knew you know where they're strong, where they were strong, where they were weak, and you maximize your your particular efforts as well. But the mind part, the mindfulness mm -hmm. of, of the program, the psychological piece, we had to help develop the kids through. For an example, when I first came to Gilman back in the '80s, on Tuesdays and Thursdays they were dedicated as our conditioning days. Hence the reason we were always in the wrestling room. That's where we did our conditioning. We were going to be the the best fit cardiovascular team that we competed against in the MIAA. So we would do we would have conditioning on Tuesdays, and then on Thursdays we would swim. Track team in the swimming pool, yeah, we were running the water. 
because we need to get to some of the parts of the muscle muscular system that the running doesn't hit. We have to condition and make those muscles even that much stronger. The distance guys would get in and actually swim laps. You would think we had a swim team. The sprinters and the jumpers would get in and run in the water. They would sprint in the water. Those kids that couldn't swim, I had aqua belts. And I put belts on them. And then we would actually get in the deep end and run hmm. in the water. And well, my foot, my feet aren't touching the ground, I know. Just use your arms and move your legs like you're running. And they would stay up top. And we would have races. And we race from the shallow end through the deep end and back to the shallow end. And they're building other muscles. Then as we got better in the program, Tuesdays we really hit conditioning hard. And some of the kids didn't realize this, but what we what they were actually doing is P90X workouts. On Tuesdays and on Thursdays, after a track meet, track meets were always on Wednesdays, that's when we introduced yoga. And then we actually started doing yoga, the mindfulness, mm-hmm. calming yourself down. Stretching. Uh, stretching, yeah. And the kids would really get into it. The coaches would do it as well. It's so important. Yeah. And we would yoga. We would have yoga every Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Wow, you really you, you put a lot of thought into the structure of the week and how to prepare these athletes for Wednesdays was the big day. Wednesday was our track meet. But Thursday is the recovery day and exactly. the yoga and the mindfulness. And, and, then, and then Friday, if we had a track meet on Saturday, Friday would be uh, pre-meet. Kids would just warm up, make sure the batons are moving well and that sort of thing, then pack up for our meet on Saturday. Those who didn't run race on Saturday, they would have a normal workout, usually a LSD, long, slow distance, mm-hmm. and uh, just to recover. And then they would have the rest of the weekend off. The other kids would compete on Saturday. Where where did you learn all of these these tips and tricks and different um, ways to coach your athletes and um, like how did you how, how long did it take you to develop a, a schedule like this that makes a lot of sense because thinking about I mean my my college lacrosse experience we would do we would do mindless things we'd have a lift like the day before like we would do stupid things and and this all makes sense to me like you structured the week according to how the athletes would perform on the the big stage on Wednesdays yeah uh it's no secret um well to some it may be and I'm giving away some of the (laughs) secrets of our program but a lot of this came by in in public school and I would look at and, and study the teams in the MSA at the time, Mount St. Joe was always good. There was public school Northwestern uh, that was very good and, and doing an excellent job through the 70s when I first started teaching in 73. And I wondered what what did they do? Why were you doing that? So when I was at Northern, Mervo was very good. Mervo was, Mervo didn't even have a track. Mervo High School, no track. They would run around the reservoir or they would run in the parking lot on the grass in front of their building, what little there was. And they were excellent. They were winning MIAA. <clears throat> they were winning state meets, and everyone wondered, how could they do that without a track? So I studied. I went to their school. I watched the program. I watched the coaches. I got to know the coaches in my young days. And I just started taking pieces of what I observed and tried to put it all together into one big program. I brought those same ideas and thoughts to Gilman from Northern of what I did. Then when I got with Joe Duncan and and Peter Julius and Jerry Thornberry and those guys, we would talk, we would discuss, and and they were brilliant 
uh, men who understood track and field and sport, and that's how we built it. Mm-hmm. And it was a camaraderie ship relationships with coaches that just moved over to the kids, and then the kids start generating those same thoughts, and it rides today. And Matt Tully is taking that program on. Mm-hmm. Prayerfully, they'll keep some of the aspects of this old guy and some of his old thoughts and make it even better than that. So thinking about your experience as the head track coach and um, your legacy as the head track coach, is there a, is there a proudest moment for you? And I know that's a, a tough question, but is there is there something that sticks out in your time that's yeah. that's the fondest memory or the proudest moment? There's so many, and I, I can't call names because some of the young men were here. Well, coach, you didn't call my name, so I won't call any names, but. I, I'll recall, um, <laughs> I know the years and I can't, can't remember them right offhand. We were, the championships were at, um, at, uh, Spalding, Archbishop Spalding. And we were up in the stands. We, we, I think that was, uh, uh who was that? Cyrus Jones senior year. It was, that team was just phenomenal. And it wasn't because of Cyrus. It, we had other young men on the team that were, were phenomenal athletes. And just as every track meet, I'm always just as nervous, and I sit in the stands by myself, or get away from the team. And Matt Tully was uh, was one of our, was one of the assistants at the time, and I think the score we must have scored. I, I think we had scored more points in the championship than any team in the MIAA. And uh, I am still nervous. We are down to the last event, the four by four. By that time, the meet, we had put the meet away. And Matt was looking at me laughing. He said, Coach, there's no way, no way mathematically that any team can beat us. It's done. I said, Matt, it's not over until a four by four runs. And I'm still nervous. And by that time, we <laughs> we won that meet. We had set a record in the four by eight that hasn't been broken yet. I think it's 748, something like that. I can't remember. 742. And, uh, no one beat our four by eighteen. No one beat our four by fourteen. Uh, I think we won the four by one. We won the four by two. We were winning everywhere. So, <laughs> so I think that was the proudest moment because that group stayed together for four years. Yeah. And for four years, I think the numbers are up on the flag in the arena. Uh, we were pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I. I <laughs> I uh, I would say during those years, if you're going to win the championships in track and field at Gil- you know, in the MIA, you got to come through Gilman, and you're not getting through us. Yeah, I've heard that line from you before. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I need not say that. <laughs> uh, got to be humble. Yeah, um, coach. So another question aside from track and the track program, um, from your time starting at Gilman, what has been what have been the biggest changes that you've noticed in at Gilman or within the institution what has changed the most here over your time and I'm sure there's a lot that hasn't changed right the teacher coach model and a lot of the people right I've noticed that a lot of people who started here continue to stay here because it's such a such a great place and people Mm -hmm. want to stay here but um, is there anything that that has changed here for better for for worse in your opinion well, I, I think the diversity has changed tremendously. I, I recall and when I when I came in '84, there weren't many African Americans, people of color, on, on the campus. Uh, today, that that number has grown tremendously because of our recruitment and retention 
of, of, of teachers, faculty of color, and as well as kids and families of color. So that that has trained, changed tremendously when, when I started. Here at Gilman, there was a gentleman in the uh, upper school who was the assistant head, uh, Bill Green, who also ran a program called Upward Bound. Uh, and, and, and he is the one that demonstrated to me how we need to find kids of color and get them into our school and help them to be able to be successful in the institution and not just African-Americans, Asians, Asian-Americans, Jewish kids, uh, uh, Muslim kids. We, we have to get more students into the school. And then the other piece is, is having those students see themselves in the curriculum mm -hmm. because you want them to understand what, what the history is and what their culture had to do with the history of the United States, the history of the country, the history of Baltimore City. So the, the, that has gotten tremendously better. Mm -hmm. and, and I still say to this day, we're one of the independent schools, especially on, on the East Coast, but more specifically here in, in the mid-Atlantic area, that uh, people are following our lead in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I think we're doing a pretty good job at it. But that doesn't mean we're the best of the best, and we've crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's. We're still in that process, and there's still some things that we need to, we need to do better. And, but, but it is starting to do that. And I often say in, in our committee meetings and the like, and to the parents and to the, to the community, it's a process. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we have to take our time, make sure we're moving in the right direction. And we're going to make some mistakes. Last time I checked, we're human beings. So human beings make mistakes. There's only <laughs> a few people that I know that don't make mistakes. And I'll touch the hem of their garment if I can. Uh, but... Uh, to that degree, we have to take our time to make sure we, we, we are successful. And as we make mistakes, find out what that mistake is, correct it, and then move on. And I think Gilman is doing a lot, a lot better in that, in that regard. As far as our community inclusion and equity work is concerned, our curriculum is being looked at. We've taken some look and, look and see how we can do better in the classroom, what we're teaching, how we're teaching. Kids learn totally different than the day that Johnny Foreman came through school. You can't stand in front of the classroom and lecture for 50, 40 minutes. You got to have kids who you have to be interactive in your classroom. Right. And, and having the kids have more dialogue, more pieces of the puzzle where the kids can actually put their hands on, touch it, feel it. Now, and understanding that kids learn differently, then you can teach differently. Right. And that's another part of diversity too is how students learn it's not you know some people might think diversity only has to do with racial diversity or ethnic diversity but I think the the challenges and in, in the classroom and that's something that I didn't really know as a first year teacher I had mm -hmm. some students with you know ADHD and um, some other learning you know disabilities in class or some, mm -hmm. some ways that I needed to maybe reshape my delivery and to, to reach each kid. And I think that, that falls on the teacher to, to a large degree in terms of the structure of the classroom and how to, to find ways to reach each of our students. I have to agree. And I think one of the points that Gilman has really made some huge strides in is our, our, our uh, Dr. Dennis and her group. Mm -hmm. um, and the work they're, they're doing in the middle and the lower and the high school and, and showing and helping us to teach better mm -hmm. how we reach the kids. 
And, and every child learns differently. You're talking about ADHD. I know that's where I set my son set and, and understanding that dilemma. That's, I take that dilemma in the classroom mm -hmm. and I'll notice that in a student and I'll help him or her move ahead academically using that knowledge that I have because that child has the ability to learn. You just have to teach differently. Mm -hmm. And I always, I'll never say a kid failed my class. I'll, I'll say, why did he fail? Mm -hmm. Why did he fail that quiz? Why didn't he do well on that quiz? Rather than my saying, son, you failed this quiz, I look at myself. Did I explain it correctly? <laughs> did I give him the, the information correctly? What could I have done better? So he and I, or she and I, will sit down and we'll talk about that and figure out where did we go wrong? Where did I not explain this properly? So I take my, we take our time, go back, and we figure that out. That's how I started to learn as well. I, I spoke about uh, physiology of exercise and all the sciences. I was awful, but something clicked in college that showed me you can learn and you can be better. I, I was not the sharpest tool in the shed in high school. But when I got to college, something clicked for me, and I learned how to learn. Mm -hmm. And it all came through the professors I had in college because they would set me down and show me, this is where and this is how. Here's the process. Now, we just have to figure out how you can get, get you know, learn how to tricks of the trade to figure this out. And once we figured that out, I got better. I became a better student. Uh, and, and I also think about that when I'm teaching. I won't say a kid failed. I will say I didn't teach it correctly. I can do a lot. I can do it a lot better. Right. And a, and a student may be stronger in one area. I've noticed in my English classes mm -hmm. that analytically, maybe they just don't grasp that concept too well. And it takes more time and more one-on-one -on -one tutelage to get them to understand how you know what exactly we're looking for in that regard but on a creative assignment they're great they're they're best in the class absolutely and it's just absolutely. a different skill that everyone has everyone even adults you know they have their um their forms of learning that work really well and, mm -hmm. and other ones that take more time it does it does I, I i often talk about how how the kids are obtaining the information and how they will then test or write. And you just have to take the time to teach them, to show them, demonstrate it. And, and they, they, every kid can learn. You just have to figure out how to help him do that. And it's just like in, on the lacrosse field, the football field, through athletics. They're kids who may not be gifted athletically, but you can teach them other parts of the sport, other parts of the game. Learn the sport and understand the game. Learn the academic piece, learn the subject matter, then you can understand how you can give that information back on a test or a quiz. And the kids can, they can do that. So I, I would, I would agree that I've seen, you know, the, the increase in diversity and I've seen the uh, fruits of all your work and everything that you've done in that, in that domain at Gilman. What do you, what are the biggest challenges or hurdles that you've you've faced as the director of diversity inclusion and equity here at Gilman uh, just helping my colleagues our colleagues understand the process that it, it when we say diversity we're talking about you know the, the gender issues the, the the ability the age the socioeconomic the sexual orientation 
the ethnicity, all of those aspects make up the whole piece of the pie, the cultural identifiers. And, and, and as we pull those things together, that's where we start to talk about the inclusion piece, inclusivity, and then equity. Everyone has that opportunity. Give them the opportunity to do it, to achieve it, and have an equity across the board, no matter who the young man, who the young woman is, giving them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and once you give a person, an individual, the opportunity, they can excel. There's going to be some concerns along the way. As I said, we're all human beings. You're going to have some concerns all the way. And, and as you do, you correct them and you move, you move forward. So we as an institution, we as a society, we as a world have to take all of those considerations into play here and work, work for that. And we all have to do it. Uh, and, 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 and we're going to make mistakes as we go. But once we all just kind of pull in the same direction, the ship can continue to move. A lot of people have said, you know, you've brought the school a long way. I didn't bring the school a long way. We brought the school a long way. We brought the institution a long way. And we still have further to go. There'll be someone else to sit in my seat and someone else will just keep the ship going. I, I, I recall when I was appointed this position talking to Mr. Finney about where he thought and figured and felt the school should be. I had long talks with Bill Greenback in the 80s and, you know, where did you guys think the school should, should, should be successful? And I just started moving the ship that way and pointing, hey, look, we have to do this. We have to do that. And, and I think one of the major points that have been made in these past few years, information will travel, direction will travel, instructions will travel from my office up. But now, now that we have a board committee on community inclusion and equity, rather than from my office up, it's coming from the board, from the leadership on down. And, and, and they're given the policy, they're given the procedures and how we can move the institution forward. And, and we're making some huge strides today in that. Mm-hmm. From our professional development that we're doing, from our student body, we're doing the same sort of things. And they are some of the unheard pieces that, that I think a lot of communities don't understand. Our students are doing a fantastic job. And, and, and it's just not in the young men who are working today. I can go back 10, 15 years and talk about some of the young men who helped us to, to move in this particular point where we are right now. I said something about a young man, Khalil Ukta, who was the uh, president of the um, Alumni Association. Well, when he was a student here, he was the chairman or he was the president of our diversity council. He was president of the, of the uh, Black Student uh, Association. And he helped move some things along back in that day. When he was here as a student, he did the same thing in college. And I can continue and go even further back. So our students do a great job in that. Student Diversity Leadership Conference, which is a national conference on the NAIS. Our kids are part of that. The Baltimore Student Diversity Leadership Conference. We have young men uh, who also operate in, in, in our local conferences. And for the second time since 1995, uh, the People of Color Conference, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Schools, will be hosted here in Baltimore this coming fall. And, and we will have a tremendous amount of schools from all across the nation centered here in Baltimore. Hmm. And that's going to be fantastic. The last time we did that was 94, 95, where we were the host city for the national conference. And our kids, our faculties, 
our schools, all of the independent schools in, in Baltimore, in Ames, will be a part of that. So in terms of diversity, what, what is the ultimate uh, vision for you? What, what is your vision for Gilman? I, I, that Gilman stays and becomes and is the pinnacle of what we call uh, community inclusion and equity. And everyone is, is moving in the same direction to see how we are doing it and actually continue that work. Uh, and, and I can and I won't name other schools that are moving and doing somewhat similar to what we're doing. Gilman doesn't have a you know a stronghold to do it this way. We're all moving in the same direction. And I can name some schools around in our area that are doing a fantastic job. And I think we're right there at the top. We're right there at the top. So, Coach Foreman, um, you did bring a, a book and you brought some other uh, <laughs> some albums that I'd love to get to here. Yeah. Um, so what is what is the book recommendation well, you have for, well, for well, everyone? The, the book recommendation I, I met, uh, this book came to me in the direction of uh, uh, Dr. Harris, who Dr. Harris, who um, said, Johnny, I want you to read a book. It's called Not in My Neighborhood. Uh, and and uh, I said, okay, Doc. And, and and Dr. Harris, when he when he points something out to me, usually usually I take it, and I say, let let me take a look at it. I I know Ontario Patella uh, didn't write this book for me, but it's my history. It's from when I was a young kid, all the way through West Baltimore, and and it talks about all of the ins and the outs. It talks about redlining. And I remember living at 511 Pennsylvania Avenue when North Avenue seemed like it was the county. And I know this sounds funny to a lot of people. I had never knew some of the things that this book talked, talked about and writes about how bigotry shaped a great American city. And I worked, <laughs> I worked at Bethlehem Steel as a shipfitter apprentice. A lot of people don't know that. I had to leave college for a, couple, for a year or so uh, because I didn't do some things I was supposed to do. And I worked at Bethlehem Steel as a shipfitter apprentice. And uh, I understood then that I needed to go back to school. So I went back to school, paid for it myself uh, to, to get to where I am today. And reading this book, it made me understand the, the bigotry piece of it because I experienced it. I lived it. I'm a child of the 60s, came out of high school in 68. A lot of people talk about the uh, Freddie Gray uprising. And, and said it was a riot. I said, no, that was just, that was an uprising. It was awful. Uh, in 68, that was a race riot because it wasn't just in West Baltimore that these things occurred. It occurred all across the nation after Martin Luther King was assassinated. I was, that was my first year in college. And I'll never forget playing in the uh, football game up in Yankee Stadium, Morgan against Grambling. And they didn't want they really didn't want that game to come off because they said it was too many African-Americans would be in New York City. 70,000 people in Yankee Stadium and not one incident happened. And when that occurred, I didn't understand it then because I was just 18 years of age, but I understand it now how that shaped everything we did and who we are and what we are today. Where the Freddie Gray incident occurred is where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I, I walked that area every day from the time I was a young man to a teenager when I got married and moved out of the uh, area. 2501 Judith Avenue is where I grew up, which is right around the corner from northern Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> not my neighborhood. If you haven't read it, read it. If you want to know about Baltimore, 
read that book mm. in my neighborhood. And who is the author? And I may pronounce his name incorrectly, Antonio Antario Patella. Okay. We've had him here to speak at Gilman mm -hmm. uh, a couple of times. He also wrote the book, uh, uh, The Ghost of Johns Hopkins. He, he was a um, uh, newspaper guy with Baltimore Sun paper. It was either Baltimore Sun or News American. We had two major papers here back in the day. So I, he was a, a, a writer back in, the, in that time. Great. Well, um, I'll post that link. And if you're interested in this book, I think you should, you should definitely check it out. I'm going to check it out myself. Oh, yeah. um, I've seen it around. I just ha haven't had the chance to pick it up yet. But thank you for bringing that in. Oh, yeah. And then how about the album covers that you were showing me? And I had no idea about this before we started recording. Yeah, yeah a lot of people didn't know. Uh, <laughs> Cesare knows because he's helped me with assemblies. We, back in the 60s, I think it was around 65 or so, I learned how to play the trombone. Back in the day, we, we didn't have all of the uh, Little League and, and, and Junior League things going on. So a lot of us, there were, weren't any organized sports per se in, in, in our area. So you either learn how to play an instrument or you sang. I learned how to play uh, the trombone. Well, it started with drums, then it went to the trumpet, then it went to the saxophone, too many keys. So I picked up the trombone because there were only seven positions, and I knew I could <laughs> move that seven positions. So I picked up the trombone and uh, met a couple of people when I got to high school. And uh, a young man by the name of Melvin Miles, he's the band director at Morgan State, I uh, said, hey, look, we're looking for a trombone player in a group. I said, what's the name of the group? He said, it's called the Whatnots. At Whatnots, at W-H-A-T-N-A-U-T-S, Whatnots. It was five singers in a band. So I joined the group and became a trombone player in the group. Uh, we were doing a show in New York uh, with the Dells at the time. I'm not I'm calling groups you have the slightest clue knowing what I'm talking about. And we broke up uh, right there in New York City uh, that night after playing with the Dells. So the band went one way, the singers went another. And a few months, the guys in the band came together and said, look, we can do this by ourselves. We don't need any singers. And so I said, okay. So we got together and we said, what's the name of the group? I said, well, we all experienced. We got a, a fantastic sound. So let's just call ourselves the Sound Experience. So we did. Uh, we did a couple of gigs uh, around the city, played with a group called the, uh, uh, the Delphonics, who introduced us to their manager. And uh, the manager signed us on, and uh, that's the rest of the story. We used to open for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Unbelievable. Yeah, at the Spectrum. We play, I played with the Temptations. Uh, we, we played with a number of people. And uh, so these are the album covers that came through. Cesare knew because he had done some things with me, the sound experience. We did a live album at Glen Mill School. That's where our manager uh, was also um, in his young days. And... Uh, this is called uh, the Sound Experience uh, record as well, and the reason why I love this cover, you 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 may not know the name, and it's a cover that has all of us as caricatures. I love right? it, and it's sticking in an ear. Well, the long story to this is, after we had recorded an album and we were trying this this uh, the live album, we were attempting to get with Arista Records. Arista Records' main guy was Clive Davis, who, who discovered Whitney Houston. And every uh, record label was trying to get sounds and music such as like the Chicago Blood, Sweat, and Tears and the like. So Motown was trying to find a group like that as well. Uh, and this is a long story short. 
we couldn't get on to Motown's record label because there was another group in competition with us. You know that group today because they, they called themselves the Commodores. Mm. No way. And Lionel Richie mm-hmm. and the like. And that's how we then went with uh, Buddha Records. And we were trying to get on Arista because uh, and Clive Davis said he couldn't hear us. What do you mean you can't? You can't he said he couldn't hear us. It's a, it's a music thing. So we said, okay, we're going to make an ear and we're going to stick the music in your ear. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and the name of the uh, album was called Don't Fight the Feeling. And it got on Billboard's uh, chart. That, that's the big one, right? That, that was the big the one. That, yeah, that was the hit for us. And we lived off of that song for about five, six years. And uh, it was after that in 1979 when I left. I left the group and decided to be a teacher and a coach. And uh, it was fun while it lasted, enjoyed it. But uh, I thought I could do some other things. Yeah. I need to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to uh, to listen. Oh, no, that music is old. You get, it, get it going on the turntable, <laughs> surround sound. Surround sound on the turntable with a diamond stylus. <laughs> it Co- was fun. Coach Foreman, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today during spring break. Um, I really appreciate talking to you and, and learning more about your time at Gilman and all you've done for for this place. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure, and I enjoyed it. Uh, Jake, I know we took some time to schedule this, but uh, it, it was a pleasure. I've seen some other uh, parts of this, and I just hope I did okay. You did great. It was, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.